Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Ginny Reddish is a world-renowned specialist in plain language, writing for the web, and user experience research and design. She is a world-renowned specialist in plain language, writing for the web, and user experience research and design. She set up one of the first independent usability test laboratories in North America and is the author of Letting Go of the Words, Writing Web Content That Works. In this podcast, she shares her passion to help us understand content as conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest today on UX Radio. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. You have such a fascinating history, and it'd be great for you to share that with the audience. Well, you know, I'm uh, older than many people in the field. So when I started, there really wasn't a profession of usability. There certainly wasn't content strategy. There wasn't the web. I'm a linguist by training. I've always been really interested in clarity and communication. And I had an opportunity some years ago to create an organization that we called the Document Design Center. It later got changed, the name later got changed to the Information Design Center because after a while it wasn't only about printed documents, but it did start that way. It was printed documents. And the goal was to make sure that human beings could use what other human beings created, which is, in fact, what we still do, whatever the medium we're working in. Right. And so that was with the American Institutes for Research, or what's called AIR, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. So how did you get connected with them? Um, Yes, and actually they use the initials AIR. Um, I was hired by AIR because of work that I had done on issues of language policy. So uh, the first project that I did for them was to deal with the question of basically teaching literacy in schools. But then the government decided that they would be interested in understanding why government documents are so difficult for people to understand. And they put out a proposal that somebody should actually go and research that topic. And I guess I was in the right place at the right time at AIR. We put together a team uh, that was AIR, Carnegie Mellon University, because part of this was to create new curriculum, new graduate and undergraduate degree programs, and also with a design firm in New York called Siegel and Gale that still does a lot of plain language work. Great. And you had quite a big team there, didn't you? Um, Yes. At one point, well, what happened was we worked on government documents for the first few years with the government funding. But I think one of the reasons that we got to be the people to do this project was that we promised, that is AIR promised, that they would create a center that would go on doing it even beyond the government. And that was the Document Design Center. And in the early 80s, when the personal computer came out, um, I tell this story, I've told this story several times, a vice president of IBM called me up and said, we're about to put a computer on the desk of every executive in America. And we only know how to talk to systems people in the back room. We don't know how to talk to end users, um, these executives on their desk, come and help us. And so my team turned from government documents to basically uh, manuals and help systems for software. 
And that business just exploded in the 1980s to the point where at one point I had 45 writers working for me for IBM, Hewlett-Packard, Sony, um, lots of the major uh, software companies. And that was the 1980s, and that's when usability came in, and we actually started a usability lab. Right. So IBM had its own lab, and then you set up one of the first independent usability test labs in North America. So what prompted you to set up your own lab? Actually, it was IBM that prompted us because they told us that they would really like to have an independent vendor so they weren't testing their own manuals themselves, the manuals and software themselves. So that was the impetus and the initial funding. And uh, then we spread that to, of course, work for many clients um, in doing that. And then in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, Janice James, who's somebody you probably should also talk to, Janice was head of usability for American Airlines and for Sabre, the travel reservation system that many airlines use. And she had a usability lab and she wanted to have people learn how to use and do use, use the lab, do usability. And she hired me and Joe Dumas at AIR to help her with that training. And she also started the Usability Professionals Association, what's now the User Experience Professionals Association. And so um, through our collaboration, the three of us, Janice James and Joe Dumas and I, we really spread usability and the idea of doing usability testing because Joe and I wrote the first book about it based on the training we developed with Janice and for Janice. Give us a, a visual of what that looked like. Sure. I would, well, actually, you find the old book that Joe and I wrote, first edition 93 and second uh, revised edition in 99. It actually has pictures of labs in the back. Um, it was a two-room lab. Um, nowadays, people are building three-room labs, but it had a, uh, a room that the participant was in, which we could set up in many different ways. In fact, I can remember doing a usability test of a portable telephone in which we set it up so that part of it seemed like the living room and part of it seemed like the outdoor patio because we wanted people to get the sense that you could pick up the phone from the kitchen and walk out to the patio. And, uh, and then the second room was the observation workroom that had all the technology in it and there was a one-way glass between them so that people could actually watch what was happening in the participants' room. You know, a lot of that has gone away today because of the connections that you can make so you don't have to have the one-way glass. You can feed uh, from one room to the other without actually having the glass, etc. Sure, sure. I still like the glass, though, because you can still see their expressions on their face. But also, if you feed it from another room, you can have a camera as well. Even then, we were taking picture in picture um, so that we would have a picture of the participant's face in a corner of the screen, uh, capturing the screen of what the participant was looking at. Uh, but what's so different today with the wonderful logging programs and various um, systems that exist is that it's all seamless. I remember in that day the person operating the tape recorder and the person operating the 
um, computer would have to sync so that um, things would be uh, the logging program and the tape recording would be um, at the same place if you wanted to look up a particular piece of the action. It sounds exciting to be a part of that, to launch something that amazing. Well, it was, it was fun to get things started, but I think it's also fabulous today that there are so many usability professionals, user experience professionals, design professionals. People give themselves many, many different names, and yet they're all working on the same problem, that is making products work for people and actually involving those people somehow in studying before you design, in participating in the design, in doing evaluations throughout the process, and that we're doing it in so many different media today um, on small phones, that we have eye tracking today, uh, which um, eye tracking always existed, but it wasn't the kind of thing you'd want an ordinary person to do for you back 30 years ago when in order to capture what someone was doing, uh, where their eyes were going, you had to make them keep their head absolutely still uh, and put it in a chin holder, uh, <laughs> that, sort of, that sort of thing. And today, uh, obviously, we can do eye tracking uh, without bothering the participant. Sure. And a lot of those tools have improved a lot. So when you talk about making the product work for people, you know, for me, it makes me think of all the work you've done with plain language and going back to your linguistics. So talk about the connection there. Well, you know, making the product work for people has many different aspects and they all are intertwined. So the language, the information design, the visual design, the organization of the information, just making sure you have the right information. They're all really important, and I think that's what's brought us to the whole notion of strategy, whether it's UX strategy, content strategy, which I hope we'll talk about in a, in a little while. But yes, my personal passion in all of this, and I do always like to work in teams with people who have the um, complementary skills, my personal passion, of course, is the language and the content. And, uh, you know, part of making it work for people is that they have to be able to find what they need, understand what they find, and then be able to use it appropriately. And language is a really critical part of that. So we, you mentioned content strategy. Let's talk about your definition of content strategy. Uh, when I when I do workshops and I do do a lot of a lot of training, I like to say content strategy. Those are both nouns, and nouns aren't nearly as informative as verbs. We should use verbs. So content strategy to me means thinking strategically about the content that you're going to put out in whatever medium you're going to put it out in. In fact, in many cases, in multiple media. Um, with the same content. So to me, content strategy, uh, because we're thinking at, at a strategy level, is about, in one place, governance, governance, which is Lisa Welchman's specialty, and I hope you're talking to her, and I know she's coming out with a Rosenfeld Media book about that soon. So it, it's, and what governance means is that it is not the situation that just everybody and anybody puts up their content and nobody's thinking about it at the big picture level. I work with a lot of organizations in which when I go in to help them, um, I just had this yesterday, I'm working with one group 
in a particular organization and on a particular topic, helping them with their web content on it. And I wasn't quite sure about some of the things I was reading. So I went and Googled the topic and discovered a page in the same organization's website, but in another division on the same topic that I later learned was totally out of date. But there it was. Content strategy would say that at some level, somebody knows about both of those things and knows which is right and takes down the one that's out of date. So that's governance. Content strategy is also about um, issues of what you're going to write, who's going to write it. Um, again, just thinking strategically about how you're going to accomplish your goals. And my friend Ahava Leaptek, who's another person you probably should um, talk to, who is a content strategist, likes to think about content strategy as aligning your content goals with business goals. So that's also part of content strategy. And my personal part of this, and when I'm often invited to, for example, Christina Halverson's Confab work workshops, um, I'm kind of the content person. So I've been talking to you just now about the strategy side of content strategy. And that's really important because that's what lifted content strategy beyond just content. But the other word is content. And content is about what are your messages, what tone, uh, what voice, what style. You can have different voices and styles for different audiences or different parts or different uh, media but that that is done purposefully and not just happen. So having style guides, voice guides, tone guides, message guides, uh, that's all part of content strategy. What do you think is the biggest challenge that organizations face when they're trying to either develop or revise their content? Um, silos. The, the, biggest, the biggest problem is the content belongs to different people. Uh, sometimes content that ought to be together belongs to different people and they don't even know about each other. Um, I'll tell you another story. I was doing a workshop a few years ago for an organization where they had invited people from many different parts of the organization to come to the workshop. And I had selected with help, which I always do, um, with help from the person in the organization um, together we had selected some examples to make as examples as exercises, practices in the class. And I had picked a, a practice from one part of the organization. And uh, as I handed it out, somebody in the room said, I've never seen this, and this topic belongs to us. And so again, it was two different parts of the organization, each having information about the same topic out there on the website, and neither knowing about the others. So to me, that's one, it's not the only one, but it's one of the really major, major points. The whole point of content strategy is to bring it all together and have the organization either have one voice or know purposefully what its different voices are for different situations. And so what advice do you give that organization on how to accomplish that? Putting together a cross-agency, cross-organization um, task force that has people from all the parts of the organization and a commitment from the very highest level to get out of the silos and to have content strategy, um, have a, an organization that 
um, understands that the website is um, the organization's <laughs> and to find ways to collaborate. That's great. One of the things that you had mentioned in our previous conversation was creating a successful conversation. Uh, I really love that phrase, and I'd love for you to expand on that. Well, um, as you know, Lara, uh, my book, Letting Go of the Words, Writing Web Content That Works, um, is all about content as conversation. That's really the theme of the book, and I think I emphasized it even more in the second edition, which came out in 2012, than I did in the first 2007 edition. So your whole goal, um, particularly in the website, but I think in everything you communicate, I think all of communication is conversation. And so to have a successful conversation, the first thing you have to do is realize that a conversation requires two people, two sides. It's not a monologue. And therefore, it isn't about content. It isn't about what you or the organization have to say. It's about who is going to come to your web, particularly for the website, where it's about who's going to come to the website and what is it they need to know. So a successful conversation, again, allows people to find what they need, understand what they find, and use it appropriately. And that means you have to understand who's coming and understand a lot, of, a lot about them, and particularly... Um, what they want and need to know. So typically in the, some of the projects where you consult, do you come up with personas per se from uh, the information you already know or um, hopefully they've already defined those people and have user tested that before? But let's say an organization has not even defined their personas. Um, what process do you go through in your consulting to help them with that? Well, the first thing that we need to do is go and get the data to create um, reasonable personas um, for, for their information. So uh, all kinds of, I mean, if I can get them to go out, um, speaking about Janice James again, when she was at American Airlines, uh, one of the projects that she had me do along with um, one of her internal staff people, the two of us, uh, we went and sat in travel agencies and un to understand what the work travel agents do, the pressures they were under, the problems that they had, um, who they were. Um, so if I can get the client to go out and actually do user research, that's the very best. But you know, you know that that doesn't always happen. They don't have the budget. They don't have the time. So then we start looking for internal um, information. Uh, who answers the phone calls? That's a, often a great source of information. Uh, what kind of feedback are they getting through Contact Us or other things? A lot of my clients use a, um, a service that puts a little survey on the website and asks people questions. And there's often extremely useful information, not only in the... Um, basic questions that this company puts up, but in the questions they ask about demographics and what people were looking for. Or sometimes if they're not doing that, I can get them to put up a little survey that will capture some of that information. Now, of course, that only captures people who actually come to the website. And sometimes your most important persona is the person who should be coming 
but who isn't yet coming. So we have to think about who they want to be their customers. So there are lots of ways of getting at um, data, but I'll go even further, and I know that some people in the persona community really don't approve of what I'm about to say, but I think it is useful. And that is, if I have a client who has only thought about content from their own internal, this is what we have to say, and they don't have personas, and they're not about to go out and do the research to get the data, I will let them create what I'll call assumptive personas just by thinking through the conversation. And I have several examples that I use in workshops where it is actually pretty obvious just from the content, who the content is for. Um, I'll give you an example that I often use in workshops. It's from a, um, a medical, a health situation, and it's about making an appointment. Well, you don't need to do a lot of research to know that the person who is going to a website to find out how to make an appointment for a medical, uh, to see a doctor, is um, either in a, is going to be anxious, is going to be uh, worried, um, could be in a situation, in fact, in this particular example, there's information on what if you need an appointment today. Um, you can, I, I hope you're picturing the persona and a scenario for that. Sure. And with that persona and scenario, you can look at what was their original page. I, I won't show it to you because, in, well, I can't because we're on Skype, but also because they have since changed it from the way it was when I first picked it up. That information for uh, the persona we usually come up with is some mother with a sick baby who wants to go see the pediatrician right now. And it's at the bottom of paragraphs and paragraphs of text. Right. So you don't need to do a lot of pre-work on data to say if these people had a persona in mind, they wouldn't have organized the information the way they did. And so I do let people do personas and scenarios, even without the data, when I know that they're doing that will fundamentally change their outlook on their content. Sure. And even with assumptive personas, you know, depending on the amount of information you know about your consumer, you can then, you know, validate that with the user testing. Um, of course, and that's the whole point about there being assumptive personas, that every time you have any information um, that you go back and say, um, what were we right in the assumptive persona and change the personas to match what you're learning about your users. You also just made a very important comment, um, Laura, that I should have picked up before, and that is, of course, another way to get a lot of good information early on is to do usability testing of whatever it is you're going to change because you'll learn a lot about what is working well, what isn't working well, and you'll learn a lot about people um, that can help you. Uh, as you move into the design process. So usability testing is not only something you do later, it isn't even something that you have to wait for a new draft of if you have something to start with. Um, usability testing before is also a terrific technique. So thanks for mentioning that. Oh, sure. And I think in today's agile world, 
we even user test paper prototypes. So everything has, in a good way, I think, um, moved the process up in, you know, in the sequence of things to begin that earlier in the process. And I'm so happy to um, realize that that is what has been happening over the last couple of decades. Because when we started, of course, the idea that most people out there had was that you did it all and then you tested it. And I've been pushing for 30 years to say, no, no. It was the same thing. It was the content uh, uh, people will, will wait. It was, we'll do all of the design and at the end we'll bring in some writers and put the content in um, everything we've already done. And of course, we all know it doesn't work well that way. Um, we all have to be part of the team from the beginning. And I'm really glad to see so much more of that happening now than was two decades ago. I totally agree. And it's so much more fun to work collaboratively like that and to be able to pivot when you need to and make changes when you find out something's not working well. Um, exactly. And that is so important. And I think there's a lot more of that going on in school classes. It's interesting that in the field of technical communication, school classes were university classes uh, for a long time have been project-based with real clients and real collaboration. And computer science classes were really not for a long time. It was really about each student creating algorithms. But I think, I'm not terribly tied into the computer science education community, but I think there is more project work and more uh, team collaboration because I think that coming out of school knowing how to work in teams is a really important skill and people hiring people should really be looking for people who are comfortable uh, respecting other people's skills and working together collaboratively. Um, it's interesting because again when I do workshops I um, always have as part of the day people doing peer review for each other because we've all were taught in school that to share an early draft was cheating and to let someone else help you with your work was cheating. But in the workplace, collaboration and teamwork is really absolutely essential. Well, and sometimes the peer review can be a vulnerable state as well. But I think it's so critical and it's good to get people comfortable with that. Exactly, exactly. You have to be able to, uh, I call it putting your ego in the drawer, that <laughs> it, you know, it isn't about your voice. That's another thing that I really have to work with clients on also because um, we should have pride in authorship and I know we all do um, have a lot of pride in our authorship, but if we realize that it's all about content as conversation and it isn't about my voice or your voice, it's about satisfying the customer then that allows us to put our ego in the drawer and think about it from the point of view of how can we all together succeed and we succeed when our readers succeed in finding, understanding, and using. So, um, and again, I, I, I wish there was more of that in uh, what people come into the workforce uh, knowing. Yes, and I think for corporate executives anyway, or in organizations, when you come back with the results of your user testing, that really helps them empathize with the users and frames things in a new light. I've volunteered and been part of making those things happen. And it, it, you, you, I get a lot of personal satisfaction of it, out of it as well as um, 
feeling that uh, it helps the community and then it helps other people in the community help other people. So it's kind of pay it forward. Uh, and I think that's great. Um, you mentioned the Center for Plain Language, so I should talk for sure. a moment about that. There are several organizations, um, each of which is quite small, but I think really an important thing. If people are interested in clear writing, not only on the web, but clear writing is really critical in everything we do. All of the material that we live our lives with, from instructions to forms to voting. And in the Clinton administration, a group got together of people from many different agencies who were concerned with reinventing government in plain language. It was headed by a woman named Annette Cheek, who was at that time um, at the Federal Aviation Administration. And those are the people that still exist. It's called plainlanguage.gov. And they are actually responsible for the guidelines we do when the United States have a federal law that everything that comes out of the government should be in plain language. I know everything hasn't happened that should have happened <laughs> based on that law. But what it does do is it gives you as a citizen the right to take a government document and say to whoever is giving it to you, I don't understand this. It violates the law because it's not in plain language. Uh, so plainlanguage.gov. And then, um, actually, Annetta retired from the government in part because she wanted to do uh, more than she could do as a government employee. And obviously, plain language expands way beyond the government. And uh, she and several of others of us put together an organization uh, that is the Center for Plain Language, and that's its website, centerforplainlanguage.org. And, in fact, it was a lot of the work of that center that made the plain language law happen. They also, um, I think, do great things. There are also several international organizations. And another thing that I'm involved in at the moment, along with several other, many other people, is a European project called IC Clear, And I believe the website is icclear.net. It's uh, funded by the European Commission to create a new graduate certificate for people who want to be better communicators, better writers. It's being done on the user-centered design process. People are going to learn how to communicate, uh, not just by writing shorter sentences and shorter words, but by creating the documents or the communications that work for people. Uh, and uh, I'm quite excited uh, about that. It's in a prototype stage right now. Oh, that's fantastic. So what advice would you give to UX designers or those in the profession of usability testing? Well, first of all, it's interesting that you say UX designers or usability testing because we have a lot of trouble with those words, don't we? Yes. <laughs> um, some people, uh, when I did the keynote for the uh, UPA, now UXPA, conference, the theme was uh, communities and the communities we belong to. And one of the things I said was we, in all of these fields, have two definitions of what we do. One is what I'll call little you and what I'll call big you. So um, little you, when people say usability, sometimes they just mean I just do usability testing. And big you would be UX or usability and the meaning UX uh, meaning uh, we create the product that works for people. And so we have to always think about, uh, do you mean design as in what the page looks like? 
or do you mean design as in we create the product that works for people? So um, if you mean UX designers as people who think of themselves as designing, that is whether it's creating the visual design or the interaction design or the information design, my most important advice to them is don't forget the content. Bring the content in from the very beginning. Please never design anything with lorem ipsum. <laughs> okay, so that's my advice to designers. Uh, and, and my advice to people who think of themselves as usability testers is think bigger, think broader. Don't be the usability police. That's a no-win situation. Get involved with the team from the beginning and think about it again as how do we create the product that works for people with all of the techniques that are useful for doing that. And I guess my advice to all of them is respect each other's skills. And none of us can bring everything to making the product that works for people. But if we pool our skills and respect each other's skills and work together, we will be able to do it. So find, find your niche in whatever team you're part of where you're contributing something that everybody else on the team needs. That's wonderful. And one last question, what would you like to be your legacy or your lasting contribution to the world? Well, um, in, one, in one sense, the growth of this terrific profession, if I've had anything to do with helping to get it started just because I was in there um, very early on and helping it to spread and helping everybody learn to think, uh, think about people and think about the conversations that they have. But I guess my, uh, what I'd really like my contribution to be is content is conversation and remember the content. Uh, it's, you know, it's wonderful to think about navigation and search because, again, if people can't find it, it might as well not be there. And it's wonderful to think of all the aspects of design, but people don't come to places for the joy of navigating or searching or for to admire the design. Uh, they come for information, and everybody has to think about what is it the information that people need and want, and how do we make successful conversations out of that? Well, I think you have been called the mother of usability, so you have contributed quite a bit to this field. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm the mother only because I was there. Um, early on, and it's wonderful uh, if they all count themselves as among my children to have thousands of children uh, doing it, and including yourself and all of your colleagues. And uh, so I'm, I'm really very, very pleased and excited that there um, are so many people today being involved in all of this. Well, thank you so much for your time today and being a guest on UX Radio. Thank you very much, Lara, for having me on UX Radio. I think what you're doing is a wonderful thing for the community, talking about volunteering. Here's your contribution, and it's terrific. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks to Steve Crosby for Digital Development, an original score piece by Cameron Michel. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, we consistently strive to make meeting new people and having interesting conversations natural and effortless. From the design of our workspace to the events at our buildings, we do everything we can to support the idea that if one of us is successful, we all benefit. 
Whether you're asking for advice, looking for product feedback, or just meeting like-minded entrepreneurs, WeWork.com is a seamless extension to the community. Go to WeWork.com slash UX Radio to receive a discount now. UX Radio is produced by Laura Fedoroff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to UX-Radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.